everyone. Welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett and I am really excited today. We have an adventurer with us, Eleanor Carey. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Selena, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So Carrie, uh, Eleanor Carey is really so interesting, especially from someone that like myself that's really interested into, in the brain's untapped potential and uh, neuroplasticity. So stepping into the unknown is something that uh, Eleanor Carey has been doing over and over again. It is something that both excites and frightens her every single time. From cycling solo across Europe in search for career change, to founding multiple businesses, to battling hurricanes, extreme seasickness and sleep deprivation, she has learned how to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Spending 62 days at sea in a 7.5 metre boat rowing day and night is just one part of Eleanor's experience that has built her ability to adapt in such a wide variety of conditions and circumstances and continue stepping forward in the face of fear and uncertainty. Welcome, Eleanor. How exciting to have you here. <laughs> yeah, like I said, exciting to be here. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really curious to know, uh, what made you do some of these adventures? Oh, there's a lot of different reasons, but the very first one was cycling across Europe. And the whole, uh, the motivation behind that was I was living overseas in the UK. I was a physiotherapist, which was great in a sense, but it just didn't really feel like the right fit for me after probably, you know, five or six years in the profession. And so I decided to cycle solo across Europe in the search of whatever that next sort of career was going to be. Uh, and I didn't really, like, I didn't finish that journey thinking that I'd sort of found the answer, but inadvertently I actually had. Uh, so yeah, that was, you know, maybe the original thing that, that got me into it. So reading your story, I, I noticed that like you were a bit bored in your, like you loved your work, but you got, you felt like it was Groundhog Hog, Hog Day. And yes. so you end up in the UK and you're going to cycle for, what's that cycle called again? Uh, so it was, I flew over to, to Norway um, and then cycled back to England. Originally, I was only going to do John O'Groats to Land's End, which is this really famous cycle in, in the UK. Like, you know, the, the length of the UK, you can either do it south to north or north to, north to south. And I ended up looking at this map and just sort of, you know, deciding that, oh, well, I've never been to Belgium, I've never been to the Netherlands, I've never been to Germany, and all of a sudden in the space of about three days, this journey had gone from being the length of the UK to being, you know, across Europe in a fairly significant way. So, yeah, it, uh, it escalated rapidly. So uh, had you been cycling before you left Australia very often? No, not really. Like I certainly, I was not a mountain biker. I was not a road cyclist. My dad always cycled a lot. Like he always rode to and from work and then he'd come home, have a cup of coffee. And then sometimes he'd go off and cycle another 50 or 60 kilometers in the afternoon. I think before that journey, the longest distance I had ever cycled was perhaps 20 kilometers. And even then it was really like a one-off, not anything that I was doing regularly. Uh, so the majority of my training really happened on the spot, on the bike, you know, day by day from the beginning of that journey. So absolutely not. I was not a highly fit trained cyclist before embarking on that. So exactly um, for people listening, thinking, how did you do that? How did you actually cycle from the UK back towards Australia? What was the route? 
the the route was so I flew into into Oslo and a trick of that one was uh, uh you know it's written as the Oslo airport right so of course you think to yourself oh the airport's going to be in Oslo but no it was actually 75 kilometers outside of Oslo and uh lo and behold that first day it took me longer to I rebuilt my bike under a staircase in the airport that took me way longer than I thought because I'd never done anything like that before I think I got 10 or 20 kilometres down the road and I ended up getting taken in that night by a service station attendant because there was no way I was going to make it to, to Oslo for the first night. So basically the whole thing was it was a bit of a shambles. But uh, the way that I figured it out was it was just by, you know, turning up every day and doing what I could. So I think that next day I perhaps made it, I think it was about 56 kilometres. So that was already the biggest record of my life and I was so proud of myself for just getting that far. And then by that point, my butt was getting extremely sore. Um, and I think it took about three weeks before I got up to, you know, my longest distance of about 120 kilometres. So your body really can adapt uh, very quickly. And I gave myself, I always had an out, which I think is was the trick. Because I said to myself, if I get a few days down the road and I absolutely hate this and it's the worst thing I've ever done, at least I've found out and at least I've tried it to find out that I really hated it. And I always gave myself the out that I could always, you know, jump on a bus or jump in a taxi and go back and, and fly home, I guess, with some sense of satisfaction of at least having tried. Um, but I think if I didn't have that flexibility in my mindset to be okay with giving it away if it wasn't working out, it was only because of that that I even had the courage to begin, which was the hardest bit of all. And so you were doing this on your own, weren't you? How old were yes, you at the time? I was uh, 25 or 26, I think. And so can you, like, speak to some of the most scary parts of your journey? Where did you finish up at? So I finished in, so I was living in Plymouth in the UK at the time. So it was, so Plymouth is sort of right down in the southwest. So I went uh, from Norway down the uh, western coast of Sweden went across to Denmark and went all around the southern islands of Denmark, across Germany, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, which that literally took one day to get across Belgium because it's so little anyway, and then all the way down, uh, you know, down the coast of France, and then I got a ferry which ended, uh, which which got me back into into Plymouth in the UK, and that's where I where I called it a day. So that's amazing. How and how long were you going for at that point? It took uh, fifty five days. In total, and I had a week off in the middle in in Hamburg in Germany, but uh, certainly the last part of that, I think the final thirty days, I cycled every single day without a break. So, and what was the most scary part of your adventure? Oh, do you know what the most scary part, in a lot of ways, was actually the lead up because people's opinions and people's surprise that I was sort of taking on this journey. It was sort of receiving on the receiving end of uh like threats is the wrong word but it felt threatening in a way sometimes the way that people were speaking about it that they're like oh you know all these bad things are going to happen to you and you're going to get murdered and you're going to get hit by a car and uh so when you I really found that once I was stepping outside of my own comfort zone you really um trigger these responses in in other people and the fear in other people that I think a lot of the time wasn't actually to do with myself but you're almost challenging their own paradigm of what they feel capable or, or, or able to do so that was probably I really did find one of the most scary things sharing with other people in the lead up what I was going to do because I felt so fragile 
and almost criticised or if other people, if I told people and then they thought that I wasn't capable or able to do it the way that that really rocked my own self-confidence. Um, and then once I was out there, it was really pretty good. Like it was painful and it was, you know, it was, it was tiring and half the time I didn't know what I was doing, but it was just so beautiful as well. Yeah, well, well done. And that was that was just the beginning of changing your mind about your life, wasn't it? Do you want to talk to the audience a little bit about that before we talk about the next one that I think would trigger that response in me too? <laughs> yeah, sure. So it was, uh, yeah, it was really my introduction to the, I don't know, the, the field of adventure, I guess you could say. And uh, it was reading this, re- reading a book of these two guys that that, that cycled all, all the way across Siberia. Um, and I just remember reading this book going, I didn't know that you were allowed to do that. And they seemed equally as ill-prepared as what I was. And just reading their story of, well, if they can be ill-prepared and if they can, you know, get on their bikes and be crying and be unsure, and if, if that's something you're allowed to do, then maybe I can, I can have a go at that as well. So that was, yeah, really my introduction. And I think it was just building a lot of self-efficacy through that journey of the way that you can learn and adapt while you're out there. And it's something that I've sort of carried with me ever since. So overall, that journey just made me so much more open-minded to what I could do and what I was capable of. And it has only continued to get stronger and stronger and stronger over time which then ultimately led me to this to the to the really big adventure uh, which was rowing across the Pacific Ocean from California to Hawaii with two other women and yeah when you look at it on paper it just seems like an insane thing to do I'm 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 in that category <laughs> did where did you leave from did you leave from uh, uh, Santa Monica or uh, we left from uh, Monterey Bay, so yeah, right. just oh wow, uh, up in San Francisco, uh, yeah, a bit area. south of San Francisco, yeah. Wow, that and is then came big... into Oahu in Hawaii, so it was about twenty four hundred nautical miles. So yeah, some four or five thousand kilometers. Uh, yeah, so it was quite quite the way. So how did that take place? I can't even I can't even imagine how how you mapped that out or how you kept going. To be honest. Uh, so it was part of, so, so it was part of an event called the Great Pacific Race. Um, so there were, was myself on the, on this one boat with, uh, with Meg and Kaz. So the, the two others, and then there were, you know, four or five other boats in the race as well, but three of those, one of them didn't turn up to the start line. Another two boats bowed out in the first couple of weeks due to seasickness and the, and the conditions. And the way that it came about that I was, uh, on this crew, it was, say six I think it was six months before the race started I'd watched this ocean rowing documentary so the first time that you know that piqued my interest it was reading this book and then I cycled across Europe and then this time it was watching this documentary and immediately when the credits rolled I emailed this this crew I just googled ocean rowing crews and the first one that I found that was doing you know an an expedition coming up I emailed them and they said that the crew was full said that they would put me on the reserve list I didn't believe them and lo and behold I got the call up six weeks before we were supposed to leave so I had done zero training, zero preparation, no nothing at all. I grew up in, you know, inland Queensland. I had not a sailing or ocean water related qualification on me, let alone actual experience. Um, so look, I was probably one of the least qualified people in the world to be on that boat, if I'm totally honest. But I was the person that had my hand up, which ended up being the kicker. So um, 
I think you have to share some of the ups and downs of that journey. So did you sleep <laughs> in the front part, front part of that boat? Is that and then you took turns? Is that how it how it actually yeah, so there was, there's a there's a cabin at the bow and the stern. Um, you know, the stern cabin, it's really the size of like a, a, a coffin. It's it's very, very tiny. Um, the other one is about the size of a one-man tent, but at times there were three of us in there. We called it playing squished piglets. It was uh, very, very tight and uh, it's it's waterproof. It's, you know, completely watertight. So when the cabin doors are closed, you do actually run out of air after a certain period of time. So you'd sort of wake up uh, a couple of hours in, you know, hyperventilating and being a little bit foggy and being unsure of why you felt like that and then realising that you had to crack the cabin door. Meanwhile... There was this, you know, tropical storm happening just outside the door uh, that at that stage at the beginning of the journey, we were on parachute anchor for a few days because the conditions were so bad that we couldn't row anyway. And being really seasick, so I was seasick for the first 17 days of the journey and was vomiting constantly, but still maintaining this rigorous schedule of rowing for three hours and then having three hours off and then three hours on and three hours off. So it was a 24 hour a day with never more than a three-hour, you know, break to rest. And there were still a lot of jobs that had to be done in that period of time. So it was just so physically gruelling, both from the seasickness, but then just going from doing a regular amount of exercise in a day all of a sudden to rowing for 12 hours a day and, and on a background of basically no rowing experience whatsoever. So how did you... Um... I can imagine there was a lot of things going through your brain during this. So can you speak to some of those moments that you can yeah, remember? So one of the most difficult uh, times was probably 12 days in and the seasickness was getting really, it was really severe. Um, I think I was having all of this kidney pain, you know, just really not even be able to keep down much water or anything like that. And I just remember lying there in all this pain and having to go and row and it's the middle of the night and there's these waves crashing over the deck. It's just, it's a like the only way I can describe it is a hellish environment, like in those particular moments. Uh, and the thing that got me through was I brought some letters from friends and family. Um, there was a really dear friend of mine uh, and, and a mentor of mine at the time. I had a letter from, from Aaron and I opened that letter on the 12th day and he'd written that letter, you know, knowing that I would open it in a moment of difficulty and a, and a moment of hardship. And it was enough to just get me through those next moments. And when things are, are that hard, all you can do is just try and get through the next five or 10 seconds, because that's all that you're capable of doing. So it was just turning up to this cycle of making it through the next, you know, minute, two minutes, three minutes. And if you keep showing up to those hard moments enough times in a row, then eventually it can turn into something quite, quite enormous. So, so moment by moment. <laughs> that's amazing. So did your body adapt to the seasickness? Is that what you think happened? Your brain? So eventually, so we, we were also um, trialling different amounts of, you know, anti-seasickness medication. I think on about, about day 15 or 16, I had a conversation with the, with the doctor via the satellite phone out there and I think we tripled the dose of my seasickness medication but I was wearing this patch under my ear that was illegal in Australia because it gives people hallucinations like I had tried you know everything under the sun to get this under control so I think it was some combination of increasing the, the dosage and then finally adapting like a lot of people are seasick for three or five days but for some reason it just hung around for me for a really long time I and then it got that most, after that. and that's what makes most people turn around 
Yes, yes, it does. It's just, uh, just this uh, unrelenting feeling. It's yeah, it's it's god awful. So I I don't blame anybody who's who's bowed out in that moment. That's for sure. I was very so, close to it myself. Yeah. So how what? Um, let's speak to how you kept going because that's the thing. There's always the thing about the brain and our body's ability to adapt to pain is quite extraordinary. And the glory does come after the pain, doesn't it? Once you realise yeah. that, that you can do anything, a lot of things yeah. change, doesn't it? Do Absolutely. Do you want to speak to some of those moments that you can now recall in your big adventures? Yeah, like, you know, on the, the cycle journey, that certainly uh, stands out to me in, you know, just feeling like being able to cycle 100 kilometres in a day seemed like such an impossible feat, even though I knew that it was, you know, technically possible. But it's one of those things that you hear it and it's like, oh, well, it's possible for other people, but it's not possible for me. And I think it's absolutely something that we have to be able to, you know, we can we can get inspired, I think, by other people and by the things that they've done. But in the end, you know, I think we can really be the most inspired actually by ourselves and when we prove to ourselves that we're capable of doing something. And then that cycle just continues to repeat and repeat and repeat. So if you can get yourself in the position where you're pushing yourself just enough that it is outside your comfort zone but it's not something that feels completely impossible, um, I think that can create a really beautiful environment, uh, you know, to then keep engineering your own future success. And this is a great spot to talk about this, isn't it? Because often when we look at all like Richard Branson just flying into space or yeah. you doing those, that that rowing from uh, Monterey Bay to Oahu, that seems outside the realm for most people. They think that you're special, yeah. that there's no way anyone listening to this could do it. So let's talk to that because let's talk about before you became this adventurous person. Do you want to mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit? Because they're going to say you're you were born like this. Um, oh, so absolutely, and no, I absolutely wasn't born like this. That is for sure. Uh, so yeah, I grew up, and I remember uh, I was never. I'd always have a I'd always have a crack at PE, but I was never the kid that was winning the races and winning any ribbons and you know going to the district events and, and stuff like that. I definitely wasn't that kid. I think I went to try it for basketball when I was six years old. And they asked me to do a layup and I didn't know what that was. And I think I ran out crying and I don't think I ever went back again. <laughs> so I certainly wasn't the kid who was, I wasn't a particularly sporty kid. I would have a go at PE, but I wasn't the kid who was, you know, I wasn't winning any medals. I wasn't winning any ribbons. I wasn't, you know, the, the fastest runner or the highest jumper or, or anything like that. And, um, and in some ways, I think I was a little bit scared and afraid some of the time. I think I went to try it for a basketball team when I was six years old and they asked me to do a layup. And I think I was so scared by that terminology even because I didn't know what the heck they were talking about uh, and sort of perceived that as being my own failing. And I think I ran out of that, the, the stadium, you know, crying and I never went back to, to join the basketball team again. So, um, no, I wasn't some, you know, sporty, gifted, super athletic kid. The, the big sort of change for me, it really came from, um, you know, it, it really did come from the, the inspiration of those books and those documentaries and hearing the stories, I think as opposed to like, you know, we have such an adoration, I think, for our 
elite athletes. And of course, as we should, they're, they're incredible. But the thing that really stood out to me about the more, the stories that these advent, these other adventurers tell is how ordinary they are. And it does show the progression from them being a completely, you know, average person with not some incredible level of sporting prowess. Um, they're not usually these elite athletes that are highly trained beforehand and just slowly stepping them through and really completely just muddling their way through the, the process. So it was the permission to be allowed to do to be allowed to do something slowly and to be allowed to be mediocre at it. And heck, it could have taken me, you know, six months to cycle across Europe. And that would have been just as much of a success as if it took me, you know, 55 days or, or whatever it took. So it's not about how fast you go or, you know, how strong you are. The thing that is the marker of, uh, you know, this adventurous mindset more so is just the willingness to give it a crack and being open to the fact that it might go completely terribly but if it goes completely terribly, you have still done something that you never, ever had done before, and that is an enormous triumph. And what I would say to the audience is that it gives you a sense of thriving, not just surviving. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, if it's, it isn't always possible, right, for people to be able to take two months off and cycle across Europe or take a couple of months off and row across the Pacific Ocean. But, you know, if it, if it is, if there is some way I think that people can get outdoors for some level of an extended period of time, that to me is what thriving really feels like. And, of course, that's a personal experience that will differ from person to person, but I can honestly say I, I've never felt more alive and at home and, you know, peaceful yet energised as when I'm out on those journeys. So, yeah, thriving is the, the perfect word to describe it. And you don't need to, now we're in COVID lockdown situations, we don't need to go big distances to do this. Like we've got beautiful national parks locally. You can run, you can do something completely adventurous, very much close to home that's still allowed under the, some restrictions for some people in the world that are still you know, really struggling with all these lockdowns, yes. especially uh, young people's lives that have been really disrupted. They're trying to get their life together and their career, and a lot of that has been impacted. A lot of them like, and that's been really changed, and that's led to a lot of struggles too. So, one why we're doing this together too is to help um, mothers and parents and fathers and children and adolescents and people in general to think of ways to thrive despite adversity and to offer opportunities. So, it's not that you have to do something big like to start the thriving business. So we, let's talk with that. Let's talk about some of the things you do on a daily basis to keep it going. Yeah, definitely. So one of the um, there's a, there's a UK adventurer. His name is Alastair Humphreys, and he created this this terminology about ten years ago called the micro adventure. And a micro adventure to him, uh, by his definition, is you know these these small adventures that are doable and, and achievable for everyday people that are close to home. Because yeah, not, we can't always yeah whether it's because of lockdown or whether it's because of our other commitments, we can't always go out for these huge periods of time. And you are absolutely right that it is not necessary to have to go for long periods of time to get the benefit. Um, so, you know, even just going camping 
overnight yeah in a you know there's so many national parks that we're blessed to have in Australia and just going out camping overnight um you know can be incredible and uh you know the whole idea with the micro adventure as well is you can even go uh, you know, you can finish work at five o'clock on Tuesday, providing you're not, not locked down in your own home. And if you're able to travel that distance, of course, um, you know, leave work at, say, five o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, go and camp for the night. You wake up on the Wednesday morning, hike back out again or cycle back out again and then be back at your desk ready to go to work again on a Wednesday. And, you know, it doesn't have to be the weekend. You don't have to be on a, a period of annual leave to be able to go and do these things. And I think part of them, this, you know, trying to develop that mindset to be able to thrive in these environments is just asking the question of, well, what can I do and how how could I implement these things to be a little more possible? And it could even just be as simple as, you know, doing an activity that you you haven't done before. If you've never gone stand-up paddleboarding, you know, try that. And it, or if you've never been kayaking before, if you've never been just trail running as on a, on a bushwalking track instead of walking, even if you only run for 500 metres, it creates a very different experience than, than just walking, for example, or vice versa. As a neuroscientist uh, on the other side of this, I have to say why. And that's because the brain needs a lot of novelty, actually. And the more we do the same, the more the brain gets bored. It's got tonnes of synaptic connections activities and an adventure is, and especially outdoors um, the combination of the exercise really stimulates a lot of positive neurochemicals and mm. the brain really overcomes a lot of our evolutionary history in terms of the circuits in our brain that you talked a lot about people reacting with fear well fear is the number one circuit that's been developed over a long time right so when you talk about a micro adventure, little tiny things that put us a little bit out of our comfort zone, that's training the brain out of that fear. You're rewiring the brain um, yeah. when you're doing these adventures. Um, and that's the exciting part. I have to ask you now, Eleanor, about your parents and grandparents. Because people are going to say, well, you had this perfect environment that's, that's you know, not coming from any sort of stress. You have more opportunities than to do talk a little bit about um, how what role they've played in your life. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my my maternal grandparents, uh, so they are farmers. So my grandma is so she's ninety three years old. Um, she's my the only one of my grandparents who's who's still left with us. It was just her birthday three days ago, actually. And so she still uh, works out on the on the farm. Um, and she's just she is she's a, a workhorse, but a such a joyous workhorse as well. Um, you know, you never hear her her complain. Um, she always sort of just gets on and does it. And I think one of the reasons why she's still so healthy at 93 is because she has been so active throughout her entire life and of course that's come with you know there's been a heck of a lot of hardship that she's endured with that lifestyle as well um but you know that just the 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 amount that she moves her body and the physical strength I think that she's been able to maintain and of course there are so many different factors that that mean that not everybody's able to maintain that of course but having her as a as a role model and, and having somebody like that in my life has been has been incredible um, my my parents, so they are both uh, they're both teachers, and um, certainly my my dad has a very 
he's got a very gentle and very sort of supportive um, energy. And it was a it was a welcoming environment, I think, in terms of growing up, in terms of feeling able to 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 make mistakes. And perhaps I think it's still an ongoing learning process, but learning to be able to be kind to yourself in in some of those situations. So it's certainly something that I've picked up up uh, from him. Um, do you want to talk a little bit now about you mentioned you've got the businesses you started? What, what sort of, where are they? Yeah, so the, the very first business was uh, an innovation hub in Bundaberg. So the whole idea with that was to try and help. Um, so it was mostly helping other first-time founders to get out and it helped them have the tools and the mindset that they needed to be able to start something. The funniest thing about that, similar to all of the adventures that I've taken on, really I had... I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never started a business before myself. And here I was starting a business that was then to help other people start businesses, which in and of itself is fairly insane. But just like everything else, uh, the more you walk along the path and learn by learn by doing is probably one of the biggest things. Um, Built that business up over, over a couple of years and then sold that one at the beginning of 2019. So it's still running and they've got a second location in uh, Gympie now. And then since then, yeah, I've been doing some uh, speaking and working on building this uh, micro-adventures business as well called Voxa. So that's V-O-K-S-E-R, which means growth in uh, Norwegian, actually. Oh, and, and I have to mention that you're also working at QUT in the entrepreneurship program, which is how we got to meet you. We're just very lucky to have you on Yes, and it's a fantastic role to be in. So I'm lucky enough that I get to be QUT's adventurer in residence and uh, there are just so many synergies between, you know, the world of if you're, you know, building a business and taking on these long distance adventures in terms of the uh, mindset, I think that you need to be able to be successful in those environments is very, very similar. So, yeah, that's that's why I spend some of my time at QUT as well. And I have to mention here that the main difficulty most people face is actually getting started. Uh, and you might you go, oh, I'm so excited. I'm, go- I'm going to do what Eleanor did or I'm going to do that book and I'm going to do it. But, like, as we know, there is like millions of self-help books or stories in bookshops, but not everyone is, you can get really excited and say, this is it, I'm going to change. But within three days, we're back to our own routine. Mm-hmm. So that's the key really moment steps. What I'm hearing you say? Yeah, so it is, I think it is, it's a trap that we can fall into sometimes is, uh, and particularly it can be a perception that we have of others that their success happened overnight um, or that something happened, you know, very, that it seemingly to the outside world happened very quickly when if you go and ask that individual, of course, it's it's been this tiny, tiny incremental progress. So I think it's just, yeah, those micro steps are so important. And if the step feels too big, if it feels overwhelming and it feels like it's not doable, um, then I would say, you know, break it down. And does that piece feel any more doable? And if it still feels impossible, break it down further. And to the extent where, you know, the, the first tangible step that I ever took towards rolling across the Pacific Ocean was just 
the tiny step outside my comfort zone of sending this ridiculous email to this crew that I never thought in a million years I would even get a response to, let alone that it may actually result in me rowing across the Pacific Ocean. But, you know, that literally the sending of an email that takes you three minutes to write can change the course of your life. And there is no, you know, a, a tiny action. Sometimes people just really underestimate the significance that it can have. So even if it feels so ridiculously small, but if it's something that you can do, then that is the thing to do to, to keep yourself ticking along. I think that's one of the one of the big tricks. And I think that's the great opportunity for people that are struggling right now because of COVID and um, in Australia and around the world. So that understanding that moving the brain and yourself forward is looking for those it's hard to look for opportunity when you can't get out of bed. For example, because the way the brain stops working as well. But as you said, it's just thinking of one tiny thing like what we'd say to people is just look out the window at a tree if you can't move your body, for example. Or yeah. go outside and look up in the sky, for example. It's that micro little step that can actually drive some big thing to happen. That's moving yourself moving you and the brain forward, isn't it? And I, I've seen, I, I read this uh, quote the other day and I can't remember who, who put it up. I wish I could. But it was, um, you know, I think in terms of developing some of those habits and behaviours, it's asking yourself, you know, when we get fired up and we get really energised, just like what you were saying, we have these huge goals that maybe we try and set ourselves and we may be really overzealous. And a good question can be to ask ourselves, not what can I do on my best day? but what am I able to do on my worst day? And even that can be a great level to start with. And it's it's a fantastic, you know, jumping off point. So it's an interesting question to be able to ask ourselves, especially in such, you know, volatile and uh, changing times that we're in at the moment. Yeah, and um, if you don't mind me asking, do, do you want to talk a little bit about a, a, what a struggle day look like for you and how you handle it? Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. I've, I have, uh, you know, some some big ups and I've certainly had some some big uh, down times as well. So, um, you know, on the on the down days, you know, on, on, a, on a good day, it may be going for a long run or going for a long hike or something like that. And on the down day, it may be just saying to myself, I've got the Currumbin Creek just out the front here. It's about 500 metres away. And there are honestly some days where it feels like a struggle just to get myself to go down and, and have a look at the at the water. Um, sometimes I just bribe myself with, uh, you know, the going to get a cup of coffee. So I'll, you know, even just disguise getting myself outside, uh, you know, as yeah, getting, buying a cup of coffee or rewarding myself with, uh, you know, some other sort of positive like that. So, yeah, I use all the tricks, uh, that I have at my disposal, um, sometimes, but yeah, there are, there are definitely days when it's much more difficult than others and being able to be kind to ourselves on those days as well, I think is really important. Yeah, so it's like but it's a kind of a sea source sometimes. So but but the brain is really has so much untapped potential once you really understand it. So let's talk a little bit as we're heading towards the close. What's your purpose? What what's the next thing? Um, you don't need to tell us because sometimes that can be oh, it's a, I, I like that. Sorry, I spoke over you, you go. That's all right. your life purpose. I like to call it Eleanor version two. 
So uh, it's a fantastic question. I think if you asked that question and maybe, you, I don't know, maybe you can tell me, do most people when they have this, do they have the same purpose throughout their life? Because I feel like mine is sort of different maybe on a five yearly basis. It will sort of continue to, you know, to morph and change. Um, look, I think my, my purpose as I see it right now is around uh, helping to bring adventure and adventure therapy, I think, to more people in the world. Because just like, you know, we've been talking about throughout this episode, people can often see this world of of adventure and and the outdoors, I think, as as a, you know, as a scary or imposing place or this place of otherness that's for people who are, you know, physically gifted or or whatever it might be. Um, And there are just so many healing and therapeutic effects that you can get from being being outside and partaking in some of these these activities. So uh, and I know that that adventure and, you know, nature in the outdoors have helped me go through some uh, enormous healing in my life as well. Um, So I used to be a physiotherapist. I swung right away from that field for a while because I did sort of get quite frustrated. And now after I've probably been out of that for about five years, I'd find myself in a different way, swinging back towards helping people again and swing, swinging back towards this therapeutic effect, still using a lot of that knowledge, but now in a completely different way. Um, yeah, to just be able to, to bring that to more people. I think you've discovered the physiotherapy <laughs> Yes, yes. I think that was one of the kickers that it's like, we can try and get people to, you know, complete X behaviors, X exercises, um, but there are actually so many other things that stop us from being able to engage in those things. So yeah, everything is just everything is to do with the brain, right? It's what it all comes back to. Well, the first cell born in the brain has been evolving for millions of years. So um, yeah. sometimes it does take a sharp, short change in environment to stimulate a massive change um, in mm. the brain. Um, breaking evolution is not easy at all. Yeah. <laughs> when you're actually starting to engage the human part of the brain and actually controlling it, really you are breaking evolution. So, uh, and I'm so proud that you've been an Australian, um, someone else growing up where I grew up in Queensland, to see young women really going hard and inspiring other people, not just women, but young people, older people. This isn't just to someone young. You can invest in As you mentioned, your grandmother kept her healthy, happy and strong to her hard work. The body needs a lot of work. So where would you like to travel to next when we get to? <laughs> oh, when we're, when we're allowed to travel. Um, there's still, like Antarctica is still really high on my list. I haven't been to, I've spent time in Central America, but technically if we're saying that it finishes in South America, starts in, you know, Colombia and not in, you know, that Panama situation, South America and Antarctica are the two continents that are still on my list. Um, So, yeah, maybe if I could choose anywhere, I think it would be Antarctica because it just looks just absolutely otherworldly and I just couldn't imagine being in an environment like that. So, yeah, that's maybe the top of my list. You must know Fabian Datner. Fabian, what was the surname? Datner. She's got that Antarctic Adventure for Women in science. Oh, I don't know. I, I've written that down and I'm making a note of that. <laughs> She's uh, in Melbourne. Uh, she has these adventures every year to make money for 
women in to stimulate them to become stronger. And yeah, fantastic. To combat change um, and to mm-hmm. change going forward. Um, she's got an amazing documentary. I highly recommend to look that up. Um, yeah, cool. every, everyone else listening, um, it's really quite amazing to see like trying to build an adventure mindset and strengthen uh, women particularly, but um, in this kind of going to actually on a big cruise to Antarctica. So I just feel like you and her might closely align. Yes, I've yeah, I've written that down. I'm definitely going going to look them up. So let's um, you get to have the final word on the podcast, Eleanor. So let's finish off with three things that you would like to leave as uh, your message for people listening. Three people to leave leave three three things to leave people with. Um, I think the very first one would be just go outside and surround yourself in, you know, some type of green environment, go and lie under a tree um, because that colour green is so soothing and and therapeutic for our, maybe you you would know better than me probably exactly why that that is a thing. The second would be to just move your body in some way, shape or form that makes you happy and brings you joy. So not moving your body because you should for exercise, but moving your body in some way that is just going to make you feel happy and feel joyful and for no other reason than getting to feel that way. Uh, And the third thing would be taking the tiniest, teeniest step towards something, whatever it is that you want to bring into your life, whatever it is that you want to build and just, you know, do the tiniest little thing that you possibly can in the next, I don't know, day or two to progress you somewhere towards that. Thank you so much and thank you for joining us today and giving us your time. Uh, we're so proud of you, Eleanor. Thank you for inspiring people in Australia to head forward and, and move forward and do something fantastic that makes us all proud. And it doesn't even have to be as big as what you've achieved, just something small that helps our society be happy, healthy and strong. That's all we have today for the Thriving Minds podcast. Thank you everyone for listening.